Welcome to the Red Dove Podcast. We are women storytellers and our stories center on Black women, mental health, and activism. I'm Rainey. And I'm Liz. This year, we wanted to take a deep dive and celebrate Indigenous Peoples Day. Uh, so we wanted, this is one of our first of two episodes celebrating Indigenous Peoples Day. And for our listeners that are not from America, last year on October 8th, 2021, President Biden issued a proclamation proclaiming that the second Monday in October from here on out will forever be known Indigenous Peoples Day. So does that take the place of Columbus Day? Interesting you you ask me that. Okay, so I thought it did. Turns out it doesn't all it does is that now on that day second monday in october if you live in america it is now on a federal level both columbus day and indigenous people's day so he didn't go all the way balls to the walls and just get rid of this horrible quote-unquote holiday called columbus day but what he did do was create this federal proclamation so now second monday in october is now columbus day and indigenous people's day however how you choose to celebrate that day on your social media or elsewhere you don't have to include both so if you just want to just act like it columbus day doesn't exist like i like to do you can just be like you know today we celebrate and honor indigenous people's day or however you would say it that's how I always did it with Columbus Day for probably once I started figuring out what a horrible human being he was. I started calling it Indigenous Peoples Day. Like it's even on the calendars in my class, like Indigenous Peoples Day for a while. So I don't know how I feel about it not being told. Like, I guess I understand why he maybe didn't. You know, I know that Biden is He's kind a of coward. Yeah, I mean, I'm like, sorry. I guess he's <laughs> my editorial. That's why right? he didn't do it. Like, I mean, I think that he is of that type that is playing it very safe. And I think he does a lot of things kind of low key. So maybe that's why I just I don't know. I'm OK with pissing off people who would be pissed off by it. Like if you're angry about it being renamed to honor the people that you know, were murdered on these lands, like the same people who are pissed about the name change from the football team. The Redskins are now called the what are Commodores. They called? The Commodores, yeah. They're in our Those conference, people so I know will... them well. We won, by the way, as of the date it's recording, we are 4-0, go birds. <laughs> but actually, confliction there, right? Because like, I try to stay away because I know that there's a lot of black activists that, that want to boycott the NFL. But today we're focusing on Indigenous Peoples Day. <laughs> Maybe I'll cut that. <laughs> I know, it's like just too far out. But No, I love it. But yeah, I don't know. I wish that he would have done more, I guess, to right those wrongs. But I, I guess I can also understand from a political standpoint, trying to ease things in, I suppose. I mean, I don't know if I, 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 it's not my approach, but I guess I get it. But I just, I don't like seeing, I guess what I'm trying to say is I don't like seeing that Columbus Day is still a thing. Agreed. 
What is U.S. Indigenous Peoples Day? Indigenous Peoples Day, as explained by Native Americans, is a day to appreciate the diversity and history of indigenous community. That visibility, say Native Americans, can help us see what else needs to change. Which is like a perfect segue to our episode. Today we're going to focus on Susan Lafleche Picot. And this is the, uh, the Red Dove honoring and celebrating Indigenous Peoples Day. So I thought it would be helpful if we started a smidgen of a pigeon before Susan is born. In like 1837, Chief Big Elk, he had just returned from a trip from Washington and returned to his people with a warning. His people were the Omaha people, which their land is what we now refer to as Nebraska. But Chief Big Elk said this to his people, There is a coming flood which will soon reach us, and I advise you to prepare for it. He explained that when he was in Washington, he'd seen the future of civilization, a universe at odds with the Omaha's traditional ways. To survive, they must adapt. Before his death in 1853, he chose a man with a similar vision to succeed him as chief of the Omaha tribe, a man of French and Indian descent named Joseph Lafleche. What a warning. Damn. Like, to to refer to Europeans as a flood is accurate, I think. Just like this, it, it crashes over you and it, it drowns what's already there. And, you know, so many other people have had to just try to adapt just to stay afloat. Yeah, I think that's going to be like a theme if it was like reduced down to a thesis is like to survive, we must adapt. Um, well, Joseph, the following year, he was one of seven chiefs, chiefs that signed a treaty with the U.S. government that signed over 90% of the indigenous people's land to the government. Oh, oh my God. Then flash, or fa- <laughs> flash, fast forward June 17th, 1865, Joseph's youngest child, Susan Lafleche Picot, was born. During this time, Joseph foresaw a future when the Omaha tribe would have to live amongst white people, and therefore he wanted the tribe to undergo assimilation to survive. He actually went as far to promote Anglo-American style of living, including log cabins, Western dress, and Christian education. I mean, to kind of be have that much foresight in realizing that that's kind of what he would have needed to survive. Like it was going to get stamped out. He knew that. And he was like, you know, at this point, it's not, we can't save a culture if we're not here at all. You know, that's kind of what I see that as is like, we've got to survive this or we, we as human beings do not go anywhere, you know? And he doesn't have the benefit of hindsight. Like you and I have sitting here today. You know, and similar to Ida's time with like Booker T. Washington and like splintering, it's like we are revisiting the past where people encountered forces for the first time and just trying to figure it out. But he kept the whole time he was doing that, he always tried to weave in 
the culture. He would say to Susan that he was trying to do cultural assimilation to keep the Omaha tribe culture and children alive. That was like Joseph's perspective. But this like extremist assimilation, it created like a split in the Omaha tribe. There was mm -hmm. um, one party, they called themselves the Young Men's Party. They were open to the incorporation of white customs. And then there was the Chief's Party, which was a group of loyal traditionalist medicine men who wouldn't budge. Yeah. The Young Men's Party started building log cabins rather than teepees, laying out roads and farming individual parcels. The medicine men nicknamed the young men's party side of the re of the reservation as the village of make believe white men. <gasps> Isn't that oh. awesome? Oh my god. <laughs> what a burn. Yeah. <laughs> but so Susan grew up in the village of make believe white men, but she and her her three older sisters, so the four of them, they shared a log cabin. Um, but at the same time, and I think it's probably because Joseph was her father, Susan would later write how, like, she felt like she was on a tightrope between her heritage and what she thought her future was going to be, which unfortunately was her future in a lot of ways. So this is a little, this is a bit of a bummer coming up, but this is important and this is our history and this is how... We can honor the indigenous people of our land by bringing awareness to this. So this is going to be a, become a common thread throughout this episode is that the, um, the inequality and inequity of medical treatment. Susan wrote that when she was only eight years old, uh, living in, she, she wrote this in her, in her, in her writings or her diaries, the village of make-believe white men. I think they like all adapt, like adopted that as the, the name of the town, but she said when she was living there, she remembers at eight years old, she's like sitting at the bedside of an elderly woman who was in agonizing pain, waiting for the white doctor to arrive. <clears throat> and like basically he never came and right as the sun was rising, the woman died. Mm. And Susan wrote that that episode haunted her for years to come. And this is tough. And she, she, she writes this. She's like, but it would steal her too. It was only an Indian, she would later recall, and it did not matter. That's what the doctor said to her about why he didn't bother to show up. Oh, my God. Yeah. So it's a weird time that I've never personally experienced, you know, you're erasing your history to survive is what it sounds like. Um, right. But she she was one of these people that attended a reservation school that was run by white missionaries. I don't know if it was this one, but I'm pretty sure it was. These were Quakers. Like, never forget. Like, the Quakers were also the ones that started the Atlantic slave trade right here in Camden. So like a lot, like the Coopers, the Con, like there's all of these roads and hospitals, but the Quakers quickly came around in Philadelphia. But our full history is this is who we started out being. 
white missionaries that showed up in indigenous people's lands and took their children into these schools and tried to assimilate them. But Susan, she left the reservation in 1879 and began attending a private boarding school in New Jersey. She then obtained a scholarship to Hampton Normal and Agricultural Institute in Virginia, which at the time was a leading trade school for African-Americans and indigenous people. And she graduated second in her class in 1886. From, wow. Yeah, she's very smart. And privileged, right? Like her father was the chief. So I think that had a huge part to play in terms of access. But from Virginia, Susan goes back to Pennsylvania. She attends the Women's Medical College of Pennsylvania, which at the time was it was the first medical school that was admitting women. In 1889, she graduates at the top of her class and she became the country's first indigenous doctor, indigenous person doctor. Wow. Not just like woman, but just first person. Period. Yes. Wow. That is, that's pretty impressive. Right? She's extremely smart and she's, she writes all the time the conf, not a conflict, but she's aware of the tension the between her heritage and the, the U.S. government's assimilation. It's also kind of funny, right? Like, is she the first? Because there were medicine men. Right. Yeah, like, that's this true. Is the first U.S. government indigenous person doctor. Yeah, you know what? That's a that's a good way to kind of help us, like, look at it through a different lens. And I think that's important for us to stop and take stock of that every once in a while. Like, yeah, by whose standards was she the first? Western European standards that we've been conditioned to accept as the norm? Yes. Right? Yeah, this whole, the whole vibe, what I learned digging into this, you, you just feel icky. Like, the whole time, you're like, uh. But that's what our government did to the native people of this land. Right. And as yucky as it feels to us... Imagine how it feels to that culture. I mean, like, I can't understand what that must feel like either. To, you know, have all of these things just taken from you that you've always had and to be treated like second, third class citizens in this place that has been your ancestral home. I mean, like, it'd be like someone, I mean, you know, this is such a simplistic metaphor, obviously, but like, you know, having your childhood home and always living there and then some stranger moves in and, and kicks you to into the basement. Like, you, here you go. You live here now. And you're like, what? The, but this is my shit. I know how to do these things. That's my fridge. All of this food is mine. And now you're telling me that I'm lucky that I get to live in the fucking basement. And it sounds kind of like from what the chief and what Joseph, with their perspective, was like, well, it's either do that or get killed. Right. And who's to say? Right. And I mean, what a tough decision. I mean, I can't imagine what that would be like. Once becoming a doctor, Susan moves back to her home in the Omaha tribe, and she becomes the sole physician to not only the Omaha people, but a nearby town, the Winnebago, 
And she, at that time, she was working for the Bureau of Indian Affairs, which is, if you're not familiar, it's a, it's a government agency, U.S. government agency. She would have 1,244 patients, and they were scattered oh. across a 1,350-square-mile reservation. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. This just reminds me of Ida on the donkey. You know what I mean? Like, could you imagine... Yeah. I just getting anywhere. Oh, and the the government's like, yeah, this is fine. You need nothing else from us, right? Like, like that fucking doctor said at the beginning of the story. Like, you know, what did he, he just said? They're just Indian. It doesn't matter. Like, yes. again, this is the same thing. That's just saying, yeah, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that you guys didn't have access to adequate health. And, you know, nothing on her end, right? But she's one person, 1,200 patients. You would have to see three new people every day to get through all of them in a year. So you really dug deep there and making that connection. Like, this is intentional. They did, they did it this way because they didn't care. Right. What happened to the Omaha people in terms of their health? Not one damn thing, but they can say, look at what we did, right? Why don't their lives mean enough to you to make it work? Originally, when she arrived, she was technically like the doctor for the government's school because she was part of the Bureau of Indian Affairs. But then as she starts, the whole tribe comes to see her. And she takes them on. She doesn't turn them away. Like, she was supposed to just work in this little government building. But the entire tribe shows up at her door and she starts treating them. They were sick with tuberculos tuberculosis, cholera. And some of them said, I'm just here to look for a clean place to sleep. Um, oh, my God. Yeah. They began calling her Dr. Susan. And she would write later that... She was not only their doctor, but in many ways their lawyer, accountant, priest, and political liaison. She would help them survive in the, the U.S. white government world. Like she was someone that they trusted to help. There was this other white dude that was a doctor there, and he just quit all of a sudden. So when he quit, she becomes the only doctor physician on the reservation. Oh, my God. She wrote that she always dreamed of one day building a hospital for her tribe. But she wrote, for now, she made house calls on foot, walking miles through wind and snow on horseback. But then later she upgrades to a buggy and travels for hours to reach one patient. That is ridiculous. That I can't, I cannot even fathom that. And then she, <laughs> that... she kind of wrote, like, she would show up and sometimes people, would, uh, the Omaha people uh, were distrustful of her and rejected her diagnosis and questioned everything she'd learned in a, in a uh, U.S. government school. That's kind of like, oh. Uh, she's like caught between a rock and a hard place. <laughs> yeah. She's like, I'm just trying to do the best I can with what I have. She worked tirelessly for the Omaha tribe as their doctor. She survives a chronic illness, but it does leave her deaf in her left ear. 
that was when she turned 40. And right around then, not only she's the doctor and physician, but then she starts to take on like, which I would describe as like community work. In the next 25 years, she fights a daily battle with, as she describes the ills of her people. She also worked to guide the Omaha people in a variety of ways. She would translate legal documents, testified on their behalf in Washington, D.C. about the theft of their lands. She was a public health advocate, and she worked to educate the Omaha tribe about the risks of communicable diseases such as tuberculosis and influenza and fighting for temperance among the Omaha. That's probably what she means by the ills of her people, the temperance, like temperance movement was like, just don't drink. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm assuming that's what, like what she was fighting, but the communicable diseases she wrote, it was just simple, like change of habit. Like they would all share the same water. They wouldn't wash their hands. And it was just by like those simple, like, aha moments like look this is you can do this it would stop the spread of like these awful diseases wow 1894 she marries henry picot who is a yankton sioux who worked with wild west shows and the two had two sons and when she married susan goes into private practice and she treated both uh, indigenous people and white people. And that was in Bancroft, Nebraska, near the reservation. But she, uh, she, when she went to Washington, she convinced the Indian Affairs to ban liquor sales in towns formed within the reservation boundaries. And that was because, in large part, there would be people trying to have an Omaha tribe sell them a hundred acres for a, a bottle of booze, for example, like that shit would happen. Wow. Yeah. So she's fighting that. And some of the, the hygiene stuff, like some of the stuff, like she introduced screen doors to keep out um, diseases that flies would carry. But then she kind of gets unpopular for a bit of time because she was an advocate banning the use of communal drinking cups and the mescal that was used in new and um, their religious ceremony. So they were like, listen, sister, pushed it a little too far. But she she saved a lot of lives and overall she was greatly loved and respected. And then 1913, her crowning achievement is when she opens her first privately funded hospital on an indigenous people's reservation. And she didn't get to run it for very long because she died of bone cancer on September 18th, 1915, at the age of 50. The hospital was renamed to Dr. Susan LaFleche Picot Memorial Hospital after her death. And it served patients for 30 years after that and is now a national historic landmark. It's actually, I think, a museum you can go to if you're in the area. She worked really hard. I mean, to be the only physician on a reservation. I mean, like, I can't imagine that was good for her body doing all of that. I'm sure she ran her body ragged for that, you know, but yeah, I just mean, the weather elements alone, which she was bad on. Miracle, yeah. She didn't get tuberculosis. Yeah. You know, but being around it and being around all of these things and 
yeah, I think it just takes a beating on, on your body, you know, but like, look at how much she got done in 50 years. Today, alcoholism still plagues the tribe alongside amphetamines, suicide, and more. Also mm. today, more access to health care is on its way. Last summer, the Omaha tribe broke ground on an $8.3 million expansion of a health education center as well as a new clinic. We wanted to close out the episode from Susan herself. We have managed to procure a copy of, of her speech. This was a speech that she gave to her alma mater, Hampton. And it was, it looks like, we were talking about this off air. It looks like it was reprinted in like a Hampton, like on campus only newspaper kind of deal. But we were lucky enough, somebody archived it, so we got it. And without further ado. My work as physician among my people. Um, essay read at the Hampton anniversary, May 19th, 1892. My friends, it is always pleasant to me to come home to Hampton at any time, but it is still more pleasant to come and report my work among my people. After I graduated at Hampton in 86, I took a three years course in the Women's Medical College in Philadelphia. I graduated there in 89 and took a four months course in the women's hospital. Then I went to the Omaha agency, which is in Nebraska, about 60 miles from the city of Omaha to practice medicine among the people who of my own tribe. The practice of medicine among the Indians is very different from that among the whites. The Omaha reservation is 30 miles long and 15 miles broad. My practice covers that extent of country. The roads are very bad and the Indians are scattered all over the reservation. I found I should have to do a great deal of traveling, so I bought a horse, keeping it in the government stable. I had received the appointment from the government of the physician to the government boarding school at the agency. I began to work at the school, not supposing I should have much work outside it in the tribe. There was another physician there. But I found that I had most his practice in three months time for I understood their language and they felt I was one of them. So I had the advantage. After he left, I had all the tribe on my hands. There are 1,244 of the Omahas. They are now civilized, living in frame houses built by themselves and have excellent farms. But they live at great distances. They are now civilized. Like, but again, it's like that reminded me of Ida, right? Where it's like, this is an evolution of thought. And this is certainly not every indigenous person's thoughts today. But right, like with Ida, like, hey, guys, if we just learned how to read, the white Christians are going to like us. Like, that got me when you said that. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but 
no not at all I, I was when i read it i was like oh there's but like you said like we didn't go through that who are we to say that you know like this is somebody who was doing the best they could with what they had i wonder if the audience is also predominantly white i just thought of that mm-hmm. that she's giving this speech to maybe yeah stuff has to change right so have to appeal this is what we did not all of us but like this is what we did to the indigenous people right let's see here but they live at great distances apart i was soon obliged to purchase a buggy and a team for the roads are so bad that a single horse cannot be driven in a wagon and after trying for some time to go about on horseback i broke so many bottles and thermometers that i had to give that up like just oh my god Susan, i'd be out on day one i'd be like fuck this shit right like oh i need to buy a car or i need to buy a horse and buggy so i don't keep breaking shit because the roads are so bad to get all over the place the as one I cover... horse didn't make it right 1244 human beings i'm in charge of and they do not live close together just for I... extra fun Good lord. <laughs> She's got a like upbeat attitude though. She really does. Good lord. I would have been like, there would have been so many expletives in this. <laughs> like, and I took my ass all this time for all these mother like <laughs> let's see here. I will give you a report of my work for the last six months. Some days I have my hands full. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I'm sorry. The Some days I have my hands. Year. Yeah. <laughs> what days don't you have your hands full? Oh yeah. my god. Some days I have my hands full. Many drop into my office. I have a very comfortable office built by government. They come for many things besides medicine, for help in business matters or questions of law and advice in personal affairs. I've had to take a hand in their politics, too, for they need help of all kinds from anyone who can give it. Doctor, lawyer, politician. I, yeah, she had her hands full. Some days were sorry. tough. I, I'm sorry, I have to stop interrupting her. <laughs> Last summer, from July to August and September, I had many patients. I went out visiting them every day, starting by seven or eight in the morning, driving six miles in one direction and a great many more before getting back at noon, then starting out again. It would often be eight or sometimes 10 o'clock at night before I got back with my horses tired out. I just, wow. Oh my God. What a day. <laughs> you get to do it all I, over again tomorrow. Right. To I maybe just, see I, four I, people. And I complain like I was at work till 5 p.m. This traffic is terrible. She's right. like, <laughs> she's not like, oh, I drive out there. No, you don't. I drive somewhere. You, yeah. you're on like a horse with your glass little thermometers, like going over roads that probably aren't roads. They're just you worn feel, down paths. You feel every little bump and yeah. you're not listening to anything except your own internal monologuing battling I, whatever the weather is that day coming right down on you i just could you imagine just sitting with your thoughts in traffic for <laughs> hours a day just on a road that has 
potholes everywhere. No, <laughs> no, I'm out. I'm out. I'm complete. I'm a thousand percent out. This I was not made for this in any way, shape, or form. This is not what I signed up for. No, I, my back, my back. <laughs> I mean, I'm 34 years old, and my back hurts just listening to that. I sleep the wrong way, and my back is thrown out for days. <laughs> Like, I, I literally lie fucking motionless, unconscious for six hours at night and wake up. I'm like, oh, I'm having back problems. Like, I will think of Susan. Yeah, I will. And then I'm like, I'm going to shut up so fast. <laughs> Fuck this back problem. <laughs> I, I just cannot imagine. I'm literally, my back is sore just thinking about it reflectively it's like i know i need an advil (laughs) (laughs) oh my god okay diseases among the indians are different in some ways from what they are among whites they're very apt to run into epidemics for instance one person will have sore eyes and almost immediately every woman and child in the tribe will have the same trouble last fall a number had it but i told them how to use separate basins and towels and many were saved from it Then almost everyone had winter cold. And then in December, January, and February came the gripe. I was out every day through three months in all weathers. One Indian man came to me and said, we are very grateful to you for coming to see us when we are sick, but we wish you wouldn't go out in stormy weather. It will be too much for you. I told him I had to, for that was my duty. And he said no more. Even the people were like, dude, like, that's a lot. (laughs) Like, just sit down go sit down somewhere i will give you as illustration one case that occurred last winter word came to me late one night that a young woman a returned hampton student was very ill she had had consumption for a year and had taken the gripe i started early next morning the mercury down to 20 degrees below zero oh my god wow like you and i have lived in that <laughs> and i had a car and a heater yep and i complained the entire winter rightfully so it was like the north wall for any uh i was gonna say lord of the rings or game of thrones yes right north of the wall north of the wall that's what we'd always say we were yes (laughs) because that's where we were oh my god a public radio station literally was called like north country yeah that was it that was it. I remember driving in the North Country. What was it? It was actually right around this time. And I was like, do, do, do. And I was listening to the radio. And then the radio starts talking about, you know, next week is Thanksgiving. Get your pumpkins ready or something. And I remember I almost crashed. I was like, wait, what? And I couldn't. I was like, I, and I literally thought that I had some some sort of mental breakdown and I lost six weeks of time. I was like, I was waiting for. Halloween, I was just thinking that. And I remember calling my ex, like freaking out. I was like, what, what day is it? And he was like, it's like October 15th. And I was like, I, why did the radio st-? It took me like an hour to figure out that I was listening to a Canadian radio station. <gasps> <laughs> and they celebrate Thanksgiving in October. <laughs> oh my God. I was, I was like, what is happening? <laughs> oh my God. I was freaking out. Oh. We were I really, 30 miles south of the Canadian border. 
Yeah. Remember they would send soldiers from like the bases in Alaska to our base for cold weather training. Yeah. <laughs> so wait, all this to say we understand what Susan's saying. All this to say we would have quit. Oh yeah, absolutely. I, I wanted to quit and I live in the 21st century and I was like, no, I'm done. Fuck this. Fuck your cold. Fuck all this. I'm out. I would come home to California and just stay as long as I could. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I've got to stop interrupting this. <laughs> Let's see here. I started early next morning, the mercury down to 20 degrees below zero and drove six miles to her home. And again, that's not driving a car. Stop saying driving, Susan. You don't know what that means. Yeah, no, you are foraging your own path sometimes. Like, what are you doing? How fast does a horse and buggy go? Not How many that miles? fast in like a winter storm. I, oh my God. <laughs> they must regret seeing her every morning. Fuck, she's back. Right? Like, <sighs> it's fine. It's, we'll, we'll figure it out. <laughs> You have icicles on your eyebrows. The first horse quit. Right? <laughs> and the horse is like, are you? No, no, no. Oh, my God. I found a one-room house. The whole family occupied it. The sick girl was lying in one corner of it, but the family had given up, given up one quarter of the room to her. It was a pathetic sight, but no one at Hampton would feel would need feel ashamed of that quarter of the room. Her bed had sheets and pillowcases. Photographs of Hampton buildings and teachers were fastened thickly on the wall. A clock ticked on a shelf in the corner. The girl and everything in her quarter of the room were clean and neat as could be. When I saw her, I did not think she could live through the day. She looked up at me but couldn't speak. I asked the family why I hadn't been sent for sooner. They said they could not send. Her husband could not leave her alone as there was no one else to lift her and care for her. And the old mother was blind. After giving her stimulants, she revived enough to tell me about herself. She had had no food for four days. I left medicine for her, which was all I had with me. Then I had to drive nine or 10 miles across a reservation to see other patients and could not get back to the school till five o'clock in the afternoon. Then I got a sled and drove back to her house with two other so Hampton students. And then I got a sled. <laughs> I, I, what oh the God. fuck? What She's the amazing. fuck? Like a sled? <laughs> a sled? After five? So it's dark as shit. I, then I got a sled and drove back to her house with two other Hampton students taking with us milk, eggs, and beef. We cooked a meal for the family. She got, I'm sorry. She got there and then cooked a meal. Yep. I, she's superwoman. I will never complain about anything ever again. I, when does she sleep? She can't. Right? Oh. Okay. Sorry. Let, okay. We cooked a meal for the family as well as for her and stayed as long as we could. The girls who went with me were both teachers in the school and had to get back for their work. Wait, they're <laughs> teaching all day? Teachers are they're also amazing. They're teaching all day and then they get up and go do this. I Wow. After that, I went every day to see her as long as she lived, sometimes twice a day, often staying to cook a meal for the family. She lived two weeks. As four persons were sick in my family at the time, I could not get there the day she died till too late to see her. They told me she had asked for me. 
The Hampton students I took out first to see her and other Hampton students did much for her comfort. Some months I have a great deal of practice, others not so much. Last November, I had only 54 patients. Wait, for a month? Not even for the year? Like yeah, last month. November, I Jeez. had only 54 patients. In December, 120. In the last six months, I've had over 640 patients, not counting those who came to my office for simple treatments, but those whom I have visited. Oh, my God. Wow. The distance being so great, I cannot see all of them as often as I wish. Once in a two or three days when I would call three times a day if it were possible. This is but a brief report, but it will show you that there is great need of work in many different directions. 640 patients in six months. That's 100 patients a month. That's seeing like three people a day and they live miles and miles apart. And this is all by design. She's working for the government. It's not like they don't know. But it's right there, right out in the open, how little a fuck the government cares about the indigenous people in this land. My God. I j- my God. So if but for her, what would happen? What could have happened? We'll never know. But she is a goddamn hero. <sighs> I mean, but it's like, no wonder she died at 50. Like, look at what this must have ruined her body. Oh, yeah. Forget about it. Yeah. Just how do you survive? I mean, I was just joking earlier about sleeping the wrong way. Fucks my body up. But like. She doesn't sleep. Yeah. I guess she never is unconscious enough to have her body get fucked up like that. (laughs) Just the waking hour she's awake. Do that for her. Like, I just. I having I need to stop interjecting but every time I read something like I just cannot it's shocking it's shocking this is like this is flabbergasting this was life for indigenous people at the end of the 1800s I am well before that but I am just I'm I'm floored I'm just this is a success story let's not forget about that right this is like one of the quote-unquote prosperous situations I'm just thinking like all of this on this woman, this one person, one person, but also what a difference she made to so many people. And the lasting legacy. She, I'm so glad she fulfilled her dream and, and had a hospital built for the people. But the fact that I have never heard of this woman until today, that she's not in our history books. Right. Of just this amazing woman we have you know madame curie which yes she did great work too but we can talk about her and her medical advances but not this because she's indigenous so they don't care right i mean not anymore just a goddamn hero a hero and it's it's infuriating that we don't know this it's infuriating that we are not taught this in schools. And it's infuriating that the idea of making sure we are taught this makes other people mad. Like, how can you not think this is important to know? Just well, to, I, to recognize and deal and absorb and understand our history is how we can heal and do better. And we do. We all need to absorb this. I need to absorb this. I need to understand this. This is 
something I don't know much about and I should. Well, if you feel that way, check out our website, Doves. We just added new, um, I don't know what they're called, but it's like links or pages. And one of them is all the dovetails. So stories of Susan's and all of the other stories that we've shared on this podcast um, where we take one woman's story and how it influenced American history. You can find them all. They're all together in alphabetical order on our website, thereddovepodcast.com. You can also our link to our Patreon. Sign up. Thank you, patrons, who have already signed up. Until next time. I'm